Uh, but tonight, uh, <laughs> over the last uh, few weeks, uh, several weeks, Brother Gene has been talking about being in the world but not of it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And uh, he, he stole the first part of that from the end of mine, so I'm going to jump on the end of his again and go in a slightly different direction. It's all fair, I guess, in love and war. <laughs> but he's been, we've been looking at how the world can influence the church and looking at what it means to love the world, what all that entails, and I'm not going to try at all to rehash anything that he said. Uh, but we understand that I'm not part of this world's system. I'm not part of this world's ideologies. And in fact, we learned that I do not even originate from the same place once I have experienced a new birth. That my birthplace changes once I go through that. While I am physically in this world, who I am as a believer should automatically clash with the world because of where I'm from. So continuing this idea a little bit of in the world but not of it, of people who have been born into a new system, born into a new mindset, we have the idea, we understand that we are not of this world, yet we are called to be in the world. So that creates kind of a problem because I'm not of this world. Yet I still have to be in this world. So how do I exist amongst those who do not have the same mindset? How do I uh, exist amongst this system that is not, that it doesn't reconcile with what I believe and will continue to get more and more distant from what I believe? And we've been challenged to recognize that we are out of place within this world. And we've been challenged to recognize the differences between the world and those that are called heirs of grace. And we've been challenged not to conform to this world or become like this world to not turn back. So knowing all of this stuff that we've heard and all of these differences, I want to bring to you a slightly different question that we are in the world but not of it. And the question I want to ask and even goes all the way back to, uh, it, I thought a few weeks ago, but it's a long time ago now, last time on Wednesday night. Speaking about revival in the book of Acts in the early church. And the question that I want to look at over the next few weeks is for you personally and as the church as well. Knowing all of that stuff yet we are still in the world. Am I personally and are we as a church going to survive or thrive under these conditions? Survival, surviving or thriving in these conditions. You see, too many times it feels like the, like the church and, and us personally have agreed with the fact that yes, we are different, that we are not of this world, and yet we have taken a survival uh, a mindset, a survival instinct has kicked in to go along with that. We recognize that we are different, yet we simply are surviving. I was going to ask who felt like what tonight, but I thought that might not be good. <clears throat> Afraid there'd be too many uh, budding flowers here tonight. Too many people that are chipper. I don't like that word. <laughs> we know that we're different, and yet somehow we, as individuals, when we begin to look at society, and perhaps even as a church, we can begin to cower up in self-defense, knowing that we are not of this world, but we are in this world, yet not really having too much effect upon this world. We develop really a siege mentality of simply holding on until the Lord returns. I'm just holding on until He comes back. 
And many times we say that in reference to what we are going through, when we're going through a tough time or, or we don't like the direction the country or, or things are happening. We say we're just holding on until the Lord comes back. And, and, but we don't, we, that's not the point of heaven, is not for us simply to hold on until He comes back. You see, because when I do that, my reference point are, is still my problems and my situations. When I think about heaven, I'm not thinking about my problems and my situations. I should be thinking about the point of heaven, which is seeing Jesus. Heaven is not just a place that gets me out of my problems. Heaven is not just a place that gets me out of all of sadness and grief. No, heaven is a place that I spend eternity with Jesus. Sometimes I think we don't understand the point of heaven too much is because we miss the point, and the point of heaven is I'll be with Jesus for all eternity. John states uh, these words that even now come quickly, Lord Jesus. He states those words at the end of Revelation, but he did not say those, Lord, come quickly because I'm tired of being exiled on this island by myself with nothing happening and I've been left by everybody and I'm just out here starving to death. He didn't say even now, Lord, come quickly because that was his circumstance. No, he said that because previously to that he caught a glimpse of what heaven was really all about. He'd seen the streets of gold. He'd seen the mansions. He'd seen the glory of Jesus Christ in a vision. And that's what caused him to say, even now, Lord, come quickly. And so we understand that we don't, heaven is not just about getting me out of my mess right now. No, it's about something greater than that. So I'm not looking towards heaven simply as a means of escape from here on earth, but I'm looking towards heaven with anticipation of what will be there. I'm not just here surviving on earth and holding on until heaven comes. I'm not just here uh, making my way through this journey called life until the Lord returns. No, I can thrive here on this earth, not simply survive. The question becomes, oh, are we surviving and not thriving in this world? That we are, as we, as we see uh, from when Jesus spoke these words, that He sent us back into. He sent us back into the world for a reason. And we're going to be looking at a biblical example of a person who thrived in the face of adversity, and that person is Daniel. The story of Daniel. Now, most people know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's one of those Bible stories that most people know about, of some, some degree, more or less. Most people, a lot of people have heard about the story of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace who were Daniel's buddies captured with him. And as children, these are often uh, Sunday school stories, staples of, of the Sunday school that you hear about. And these are the most common things that are pulled out of the story of Daniel, the lion's den, the three Hebrew children, the fiery furnace. They're stories that we think of perhaps almost as an adventure story. And that if we do the right thing, if we stand up for the right thing, that good things will happen in our life. That's the simplistic version of the story. If, I, if, the, if the edict comes down from the, kid that no, from, the kid, from the king that no one will worship God, and I go ahead and worship God because I know it's right, and I get thrown into the lion's den, then bless God, the lions won't eat me. I don't know about you, but there's been a few lion's dens I've ended up in, and I think I got nibbled at a little. <laughs> the message really of doing the right thing and God always showing up and deliverance being the answer is really not a biblical idea. We know that God promises to be with us in every trial. He promises to be with us through every circumstance, even if He doesn't deliver us from every trouble and tribulation. 
He's with us in the trial. He's with us through the circumstance, but we might not get out of the circumstance. What the book of Daniel does demonstrate to us, though, it it tells us about a few young men living for God in the middle of one of the most immoral times, one of the most immoral nations ever known to mankind. And these were not older men. These were young men that were captured. They were probably in their late teens, early 20s at the most. And I would like to point out to you that they did not just survive in an immoral land, but they thrived in this environment. Now, I know the world that we live in is a pretty strange place right now. There's all kinds of stuff going on. You can't keep track of who's doing what and how things are going. And stuff is just moving so quick. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible almost to stay uh, up to everything unless you're just on the Internet all the time looking at everything. I, you know, <laughs> you hate to say in the good old days, but it used to be, <laughs> it used to be there was the LGBT uh, agenda that, you know, the church was worried about. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transsexual. If you look now, that has been, that's, that's the old days. Those days are long gone of just four letters standing for something. I looked it up because I'd read an article the other day. I wanted to get it right, and I actually had to copy and paste this. This is actually the official name that they would like to be known as. The LGBTQQIAAP. Now listen to this. That stands for the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Transsexual, Queer, Questioning, Intersex, Asexual, Ally, Pansexual. Ally means just a friend of. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. We live in a society that even Christian denominations are not only okay with, but they are ordaining people's, people of various sexual orientations. There was an article this, this month about the United Methodist Church and how they have officially accepted and appointed a deacon that is the first deacon that is a non-binary trans person. How many of you know what that is? A non-binary trans person. That means that person identifies as neither male or female. And throughout the article, they were consistent in the article, that person is referred to as they or them because they are not he or she and do not want to be referred to that way. They are bi- non-binary. So they are called, when you reference that person, you speak of they and them. And just, that's it. That's craziness happening. That's crazy. You know what? If you watch the news, you're not only going to see all that stuff, you're going to see terrorism that happens daily in our world. In fact, uh, it's hardly even newsworthy to us uh, of a bombing or something happening because it happens every single day. Unless it happens in, in a first world country, we're not really shocked by it anymore. Daily, there's things taking place around the world and hundreds dying in attacks. That's not really even news. It's so old. It's just so common. We live in a world in where truth can be labeled as hate speech in a country that has freedom of speech as a First Amendment. We're living in a world in which its boundaries are being pushed in every way imaginable. And yet, despite how crazy it seems now, despite how far out things seem to have have spun in these days, when we read about the end times, the world and its system is referred to as Babylon. Now, Babylon was a very rough place. Babylon was very occultic in its religion. 
In fact, this is the same religion and astrology that Daniel, he was tested and taught in for three years. He learned the occult and astrology. This was not just some different religion. This, these are things that are directly opposed to what Daniel believed and stood for. And he had to learn it or be killed. He was in a program that was designed to certify him. When he got done with the program, he was supposed to join the enchanters, the magicians, and pra- practitioners of the dark arts. You know, whatever our educational system may be now, and it doesn't seem to be all that great, it was nowhere near close to what Daniel had to go through. They they lost their names, their, their Hebrew names. They were given names to reflect their new society. While it doesn't say so explicitly, there's a very strong possibility that Daniel and those others captured with him were made eunuchs also. They were being trained by eunuchs, and there's, there's no mention of them ever having families, which was a very key part of Judaism. And we can debate whether today is the worst that it's ever been. We can debate which culture or which society has been the most vile and wicked. But what we do know is that Daniel found himself in a culture that was at least as wicked as ours. And he managed to serve God with integrity. He managed to serve God with power and with such a force that every social class, every economic class, each person in that kingdom was forced to confront the reality of Daniel's God. Now to me, that sounds like revival in some form or fashion, where the God that I am serving and the way that I serve Him makes people at least confront that my God might be real. And we're going to take a look at some of the things that allowed Daniel to not just survive in the middle of one of the most wicked nations to ever exist, but he thrived in the middle of a seemingly impossible and godless situation. And I believe that it's time for the church to thrive in this situation that we're in now. I don't believe it's time for the church merely to go into survival mode, but I believe the church can thrive. I believe that you can thrive in the middle of our world. We have to start out by realizing something about Daniel. We learn something about Daniel from his narrative at the very beginning of his writings. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. You see, Babylon came and they destroyed Jerusalem. They not only destroyed Jerusalem, but they took the treasured vessels of the temple, things that were consecrated to the worship and service of God. They killed thousands. They took captive the king of Judah. And they took those young, healthy, and those that looked smart. Maybe they found out they weren't later. But they looked smart that day. Actually, they probably looked dumb if they ended up wanting to look smart. So they'd be captain. I don't know. But they took all those young guys that looked healthy, that looked like they had something going for them, and they left just the sick, the aged, and and to live in just a shell of a once former great city. And to make matters worse, it all happened at the hands of the most ungodly of kings, the most ungodly of nations that the world had seen up until that point. Really, this is the worst, the lowest that Daniel has ever experienced in his short life. His entire world is not just flipped upside down. This is something that is beyond your world being turned upside down. This is the worst that Jerusalem and Judah had ever experienced. And we find this small phrase at the start of verse 2. 
all of this has happened to him. If, he is, if anyone had a right to complain, to question, to, to, to say what in the world is going on, it is Daniel in this moment. But at the start of verse 2, we find four words, and it says, And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. From the very start of the book of Daniel, from the very start of him writing down his story, he emphasizes that his story is not about evil triumphing over good. He is not writing a story of abandonment or defeat or of a person that's been forsaken. Daniel makes it very clear from the start of his book, I want you to understand from the very outset who was in control of my life, who was in control of my story, who was in control of this nation, and it is none other but the Lord God Himself. He wanted us to know that it doesn't matter what is going on in my life right now. You see everything going on, but I want you to know that the Lord is in control no matter what. And this is, this is a foundational principle that we have to understand about Daniel. From Daniel's perspective, from the way that he saw it, it was God who had allowed Jerusalem to be ransacked. It was God who had allowed the king to be captured. It was God who allowed the temple treasures to be taken. And it was God that allowed Daniel to be taken from his friends, his family, his home to a foreign, godless land. But Daniel saw something that's difficult for most of us to see. I know it is for me to see sometimes. And that is that God's hand is in everything that happens in my life. This is the foundation that he built his life on. He settled this in his life and everything else was built upon this. That God's hand is everywhere. You see, to some it may, it may seem as fatalistic. Well, you know what? It'll just all work out. But no, it wasn't fatalism. It was ultimate trust in a God. That everything that happens to me, everything that takes place in my life, has not left the hands of God. I'm in God's hands no matter what. And He trusted in this. He trusted in this fact in spite of what it looked like, in spite of all the wickedness that prevailed. It didn't matter what he was being taught in class that day. It didn't matter what the dietary restrictions were that day. It didn't matter what happened. It still came back to, and the Lord gave. The Lord is still in control of my life. You see, because he never forgot something. And while you and I know this, very often we forget it in our actions and in our thoughts. And it's not really that deep or really that profound. But he never forgot in his mind and in his actions that God is bigger than any nation. God is bigger than any ruler. God is bigger than any Babylon. God is bigger than any wickedness. And while you and I know that, that God is bigger than everything, let me just say that sometimes my actions don't reflect that God's bigger than my circumstance. But you see, Daniel, that's how he not just survived, but he thrived in the middle of Babylon. Is he understood that God's bigger than all of this. It doesn't matter what's happening in the big picture. It doesn't matter what's happening in the details of my life. God is still in control. And see, our actions demonstrate that we don't believe that. Our actions demonstrate it. Stress levels have never been so high. Anxiety has never been so high. Fear is rampant. Depression is everywhere. Anger is everywhere. It demonstrates that we have the knowledge that God's in control, but we don't have a grasp on the fact that God's in control. (laughs) You know, I was reading something. Well, anyway, I won't tell you what I was reading. (laughs) You see, until you have that grasp that God is in control, not just the knowledge of it, not just the idea that God is bigger, but until you have that burning inside of you, it's grabbed hold of you emotionally, really, until you have that surviving is all that you're doing in this world. 
You're emotionally tied to what the world does. You're emotionally tied to situations in your life. And it's hard to become untied to those. Why? Because it's your life. It's your life. I know when things happen, I get all tore up inside and I'm not sure what to do and this is going on. And you know what that reflects? It reflects in that moment that I forgot that God is bigger than all of this. I forgot that God is in control of all this. I know it looks bad. I know it looks like it's not a good situation. But Daniel knew that God is in control no matter what. Despite any hardship going on around him, he continued to put his faith in God. He maintained, maintained his faith through every suffering, through all inequity, every injustice that happened to him. He kept obeying God. He kept obeying Him despite the fact that his obedience seemed counterproductive. He obeyed God. Look where it put him. In a lion's den. He obeyed God and he got in worse situations. But he kept believing no matter what, God is in control. You know what he did? He kept perspective as well. Without perspective, everything becomes blown out of proportion. Now, if you've got kids, you know what blown out of proportion means. <laughs> you think that someone's spleen has been crushed, at the very least. You think that there's going to be blood spurting out somewhere. And you come around the corner and it's been blown out of proportion. Someone stubbed their toe or someone said you're ugly or... You know, whatever happened to the good old days when unless you're dying or someone's kidnapping you, you don't ever scream. But when we lose perspective, we begin to blow things up out of proportion. You see, what we do is we begin to evaluate our circumstances without God. You see, when things get out of proportion... When I think my circumstance is too much, when it begins to overwhelm me, I've taken God out, and you know what I've done? I begin to place the situation against myself. This is too much for me. Yep, probably is. That's why you got God. You see, our actions don't demonstrate, I can't take much more of this. No, but God can. You see, I know He's in control, but I don't respond that way. My, I get tied to, and I, I lose perspective. I begin to evaluate my circumstances without God. Daniel endured to the end. He, he, he kept obeying God in the face of everything. He kept perspective. He endured to the end. And we know Paul and James encouraged us to keep going, to not give up. We know that the prize is not to the, the quickest one, but it's to those that endure to the end. Aren't you glad that you don't have to be the quickest? But you know what? I've just got to be faithful doing what I know is right, continuing to believe God. And if I make it to the end, I'm going to get the prize. And then when I begin to endure, it produces a courage and a confidence. Because you know what? When I endure, that means I've come through something. It's not endurance unless I've come through something. But when I come through something, it begins to build a courage and a confidence. Not in myself, but it begins to build my confidence in God. That you know what? He brought me through that. And I know this seems a little bit bigger, but God's going to bring me through this as well. It builds a quiet assurance in us that no matter what happens, God can bring me through it. We endure. And that's not untested bravado. That's not a bunch of hot air. But it's a courage and a confidence that runs deep. And it's based on what God has brought us through before. That's why our testimonies are so important. That's why I need to hear your testimonies. You know why? Because it helps me endure to the end. These are all things. Obedience, perspective. That he endured to the end. That he had confidence. That he had courage. A deep assurance in who God was. These are all things that Daniel exhibited. 
But there's three things in particular that we're going to look at, not all of them tonight, that allowed him to do more than just survive in a strange land. And the first one that we're going to look at is hope. Hope. Hope is what allowed him to not just survive, but thrive in a strange land. Now, hope is a word that all of us know, but hope can have several different meanings. Just like when your kids come to you and say, everybody has, or everybody's doing, (laughs) all they mean is just the few five people they know. (laughs) And you say, everybody? Well, name them. (laughs) See, it's not everybody. Or when your kid says, you never let me. Never in the history of the world have you ever. No, that's not what they mean. That just means the last time or two they asked you, you know, you haven't let them do it. Language means different things to different people, and words can switch. Our, our, our very language itself is switched. Words don't mean the same thing they used to. If you don't believe me, well, there's words you can say to people that they probably wouldn't appreciate that, well, their meanings have changed. But that's why it's important for us to look at what, what the words originally meant, how people originally understood them at the time of writing. And the word hope is one such word. The dictionary today defines hope this way. The feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. Now, this definition lends itself. uh, There's two things about it. The first of it mentions, first of all, feelings. That what is wanted can be had. Secondly, it gives us the idea of some sort of optimistic fatalism. That what will be, will be, and it will all work out in the end. (laughs) Now let me just say, if hope is a feeling, then hope can be lost, or hope can fluctuate, just like your feelings. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 says this, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Now I think this verse flies in the face of hope being a feeling. Because I know that I do not anchor my soul, something that is eternal, to my feelings. If you are anchoring your soul to your feelings, and that is a mistake because your feelings can fluctuate. No, the writer of Hebrews is not talking about something that can be, uh, that fluctuates with external circumstances. No, it's talking about something far more secure that I can put an anchor into. My feelings cannot be called sure and steadfast. Your feelings from right now will change to in the morning. They are not sure and steadfast. For this hope to be called an anchor, it has to be something other than a feeling. It has to be more than a wish or a wanting of something. You see, sometimes we get that mixed up that we think hope is wishing or wanting, that if I want something bad enough, it will happen. That's not faith either. We think that wanting something bad enough is called faith. If I just want it bad enough, God will give it to me. No, the more I show I want something, then God will give it. That's, that's, that's not how it works. Just because I want it really bad doesn't mean God will give it to me. Because that means the answer is based on you and what you do and not upon God. So I understand that this hope that I have is more than just a feeling, but it's something that should be secure in my life, something that should be strong, something that when the circumstances come, when the storms of life come, will keep me sure and strong in what is right. And that is not my feelings. The second part of how hope is defined there is that events will turn out for the best. And while that is technically true, 
Because if I, events will turn out for the best if I keep my hope because I'll end up in heaven. So while technically it's true, most of the time we would change that to read that my events will turn out for my best, is what hope means. When we look at the life of Daniel, there's very few points in his life where we can say the best was happening to him. When he and his friends were allowed to eat vegetables and not meat offered to idols, we view it as a miracle. But let me remind you, they were still in the service of a foreign king. They were still had to learn a foreign language, respond to a foreign name, be taught occultic practices. They were still there. Let me remind you that when Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, yes, it was a miracle. Yes, it was something amazing that happened that spared his life. But you know what he did when he came out of the lion's den? He got out of the lion's den and had to go back into the service of a foreign idolatrous king. We just see him being delivered from the lions and think it's all better in our life. No. He was a man still separated from his family, from his homeland. We find a similar circumstance in the story of Joseph. We read that Joseph found favor in Potiphar's household and we think, man, he's doing really good. You know what? He was still a slave. We find Joseph finding favor with the jailer and he got special privileges. You know what Joseph was? A prisoner. We think, oh, great things are looking up for him. Yeah, in jail. I don't deny these victories in the miraculous, but if you would put yourself in your situation, how would you view that situation? You see, we're quick to look at Daniel in the lion's den and these things happening, and we see them as miracles because they're in someone else's life, and we see the bigger picture. But too often we, feel, we fail to see God's provision and deliverance in our own life just because it's not a full deliverance. Just because the situation or event didn't work out for what I thought was best, we don't see it as a full deliverance. It may be, not be the way I thought or the way I wanted. And what happens in those circumstances is that when we uh, have this hope that the world gives, when we have this definition of hope, of wanting something really bad, you know what it does? It puts a dent in our hope. So what happens. Well, I thought it'd turn out different. And you know what? Suddenly we hope a little less. We wish and want a little less. We begin to lose hope as the promise gets farther away. We begin to lose hope as total deliverance doesn't happen in our life. This is how we walk away from an altar, disappointed that someone didn't get the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Meantime, all of heaven is rejoicing that someone repented. We're disappointed because it wasn't all the way. We fail to see small victories in our own life as miraculous. We see Daniel on the lion's den and think, wow, I want that to happen in my life. And God does some small miracle, but your overall situation is still the same. We think, God, where are you? We see the three Hebrew children and they walk in the fire and an angel appears in the fire. There's a fourth one in the fire. Man, I want that to happen in my life. I want my circumstance to have a fourth man walking in the fire. You know what happened when they came out? They were still slaves to the king. We think, well, God, you really didn't do anything. I wonder how many small victories have happened in our own lives that were miraculous events and we just wrote them off. And instead of rejoicing over them and saying, you know what, God, you did something in my life, it simply puts a dent into our faith and into our hope. And here's the deal, because our hope isn't really true hope, we begin to lose that feeling. And our faith begins to erode. And our feeling is going up and down and the circumstances begin to affect it before long. Our attitudes and our actions demonstrate really that we are questioning whether God is really in control anymore. 
Again, I say he's in control, but you know what? The sleepless nights say something else. I say it's all in his hands, and yet I'm stressing out trying to figure out how I can work it all out. But it's in his hands. I left it there. Just let me have it for a minute. In Acts, they were commanded to not preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. They did not leave wringing their hands, stressing out, freaking out, saying, you know what, God told us to build a church. He told us to change the world. He gave us His power to be witnesses. And now we can't say Jesus' name anymore. No, they had a prayer meeting. Their faith was not shaken. Their hope of a church was not dashed because it was not tied to their circumstances, what was going on in the world around them. It was tied to something else. It was not based upon how they may have felt or how the circumstances looked. I want you to think about that. My hope and faith are not changed by how I feel. They're not changed by the circumstances around me in this life and in this world. My hope and my faith are unaffected by what is happening in my life. They should be. You know what? It doesn't matter in this world who allows what sexually to be accepted. It doesn't matter, you know what, if they take away free speech, it doesn't affect my faith and hope. You know what, even if they take away my BB gun, things are in a bad way, that happens. It's not going to affect my faith and hope. You know what, it doesn't matter if whatever person's in power says, you know what, I'm doing away with elections. I'm the permanent president. Doesn't affect my faith or my hope. You see, if my faith and hope is based on external things, it could. You know what? Well, what happens if they take away tax-exempt status from churches and we got to start paying all this money? You know what? It doesn't affect my faith and hope. What if the doors close down? It doesn't affect my faith or my hope. Because it's an external circumstance. How will we survive are the questions we ask. All that stuff happening is we think, how am I going to survive that? The question is not, are we going to survive, but can we thrive? You see, what we do in the situations, when we begin thinking ahead, we begin thinking about all the what-ifs. And we think, what if this happens? And what if this ha-? You know what? In nine, well, I can't remember what year it was. Oh, I, yeah, I do. Y2K, 2000. Presidential election was coming up. Those of you, anyone remember Y2K, when the world was going to shut down? Okay. And maybe it did, and this is all like an, an other world, another dimension we're living in. Maybe this is the matrix, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what people were worried about? They were worried it was a conspiracy that Bill Clinton had started, and that when things shut down, Bill Clinton was going to declare martial law, and he was going to, be, he was going to put himself back in office. It seems like we just had that fear going around about a... It just all comes around. How are we going to survive? What happens? We think of all the future what-ifs. What if this happens in my life? What if this happens in the country? What if this happens? And you know what we do? We take the grace that we have now. We take the strength that we have now. We take the power that we have now. And we apply it to future situations and wonder how we're going to survive that. Because the future situations are always worse, right? They're never better. They're always worse. What if is never better? What if I do win the lottery? No. That would be really not, no. 
But we take, our, we take our present grace, we take our present strength, our present power, and we apply it to these catastrophic future what-ifs. And we think, how in the world are we going to survive? But you see, that's not how God works. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says this, Moreover, the law answered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now I want you to see this. If there's more sin, there's more grace. So if the world gets more wicked, guess what? I don't get just the grace I have now. I get more grace. (laughs) You see, I think, how am I going to do it with what I got right now? But God says, if it gets worse, I've got more. Don't worry about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, My grace is sufficient for thee. That means it's enough. That means no matter what happens right now, his grace is enough. What happens if the whole world just flips a switch and it's all different tomorrow? You know what? My grace right now may not be enough, but his grace is sufficient and he'll give me enough grace for what I need in the middle of every wicked situation, in the middle of every circumstance, in the middle of every trial. His grace will increase as I need it. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29, there's a famous verse in here, but it says, He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increaseth strength. Even the youth shall fail and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's people in this room that you have experienced this. You didn't know how you were going to make it through. If things got any worse, and they got worse, but all of a sudden, He gave power to the faint. He gave might to those so they could increase in strength. He renewed your spirit. You see, the day before you might not have had enough and things got worse, but his strength became greater the next day. His grace became more when you needed. So you know what that means? I'm not going to worry about what the future brings. I'm not going to worry about it because I know he's in control. And you know what? I know that he'll give me what I need to make it through because he is in control. So I'm not going to worry about any situation. I'm not going to worry about how I'm going to survive. No, I'm going to believe that the Lord will give me what I need to thrive in this world. I believe the Lord will give His church what it needs to thrive in the middle of wickedness. It will never be too great, the sin. It will never be too dark. It will never be too overwhelming when I put my faith and trust in Him. If my hope is real hope, if my faith is real faith, if it's really placed in Him, then you know what? When the pressure comes, when the trouble comes, it will be revealed in my life. Now think about this. If He gives me enough when the time comes, no one that ever had true faith, no one that ever had true hope, ever faced a situation that was too great. There's nothing too big that can come your way. If my hope is right and placed in the right thing, it's not tied to my my emotions, my external situations. No, it's tied to something greater. If my faith is that He is in control, then I can never face a situation that's too big. That being the case, when I look at people that may have walked away, it was not because their faith, it wasn't because that God wasn't enough. It was that their faith and hope was not put in the right thing. 
If the situation got too much, that means my faith and hope were not able to stand the test when it came. I want to make sure in my life that my faith and hope is put in the right thing. I want to make sure I'm grounded, my anchor is firm in Jesus Christ. That my faith is in His name, my faith is in His power. So quickly here, I want to look at what real hope is. The anchor of hope that can hold me in every circumstance. The anchor that held Daniel... And the anchor that held the early church through every trial and persecution was the same. There's many improbable, or many instances of improbable comebacks in sports. We have some Green Bay fans here, I think. Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre have uh, quarterbacked some infamous or famous comebacks in sports when it seems like all hope was gone. You still have Aaron Rodgers with one 60-yard pass downfield and the improbable happens as the referees are paid off. (laughs) When it seemed like all hope was gone and then the comeback happens. I know no one here has probably ever saw it. No, I'm sure no one here has ever saw it. There's a very famous soccer game that nobody has ever seen. There's a final of a European championship in Manchester United. You may have heard of them was down by one goal. It was in the last minutes. It was so close to the end that the guy took the trophy, walked out of the stadium, or not out of the stadium, out off of the field and got in an elevator to go down and etch the other team's name on the trophy. And when he got off the elevator, Manchester United was winning. They'd scored two goals in the span of an elevator ride and won the game. One that many of you may know, I'm not going to go through every improbable comeback, Just soccer ones. In 2011, game six of the World Series. Two outs, bottom of the ninth. The series was about to be over. It's all done. The Cardinals are down seven to five against the Texans and up steps David Freeze as a chill runs through the crowd. Hometown boy playing for his hometown team. Steps to the plate. It's all on the line. There's two on. One out left. I mean, it's down. This is it. The series is over if he doesn't do something. He hits a ball to right field that should have been caught. And but by the grace of the Lord, it was dropped. Two runs score. David Freeze ties the game in the bottom of the ninth. The Texans score two more runs. It's now the bottom of the 11th. Tied 9-9. It was 7-5. Now it's tied 9-9. And of all improbable things, who steps to the plate? David Freeze. Game on the line. Hometown boy, hometown team. What does he do? Solo home run. Walk off home run. Unbelievable. Amazing. I'm sure each of these moments, and during each of these moments, I'm sure there was people who probably left the stadium. Of any improbable comeback. You know when the game's over. You knew when the Super Bowl was over this past year and Atlanta had it all sewed up. You knew it. Till the next day. There was no point in watching anymore. People turned off their TVs. People turned off their radios. Left the stadium because they knew it was over. While they knew it wasn't technically impossible. It was over. I mean it was done. Cardinals are down two runs. Bottom of the ninth. David Freeze. I mean come on. Now watching those games in real time. Perhaps you saw the World Series game or heard it in 2011. Watching those games in real time and watching them on a replay are two completely different things. 
in real time, because I remember listening to that game, in real time, before the moment happened, there's a completely different feeling in the stands. There's despair, it's over, despondency, how do we get so far, we're so close, yet we're so far, maybe there's frustration, maybe they're already talking about, well, if the manager would have done this, if LaRusso would have done that, all this stuff's going, because it's over, I mean, technically it's not, but I mean, really. While there's a sliver of hope, what we would call hope, we're just really wishing and wanting, you know, really there's no chance. And then seemingly the impossible happens. And what was merely just a sliver of wishing suddenly becomes reality. And if you see videos, I mean, if you watch it, if you were in the moment, crowds are going nuts, people are going crazy in those moments because why? The impossible happened. Something, something unbelievable happened. Nobody knew it was coming. And they went nuts. They went wild. Then you watch the replay a few days later. It's different watching a replay rather than watching it live. Well, you may watch that, you know, because I'm sure people have put it to music on YouTube and there's rousing music as David Free steps to the plate and he hits a home. I'm sure there's all that and you still get a few chills down your spine. While that may happen, the emotion is completely different. Why is that? Why is it different watching something live and being in that moment and watching a replay later of that moment knowing what happened? Why? You know what happened. You know, it's as simple as that. You know what happened. If I was to watch a replay of David Freeze and that, I know that the right fielder is going to miss the ball. In the moment, I may have been like this. But now I'm just like... He's going to miss it. I know it. I'm not excited about it, really. I mean, it's kind of cool, but you know what? I know he's going to miss it. I know what's going to happen when he walks up in the bottom of the 11th. I'm not going, oh, come on, do it one more time. Just hit a single. No, I know he's going to hit a home run, and that one guy's going to be the first guy out, and he's going to grab the ball, and then the camera turns away, and that guy was probably killed up there because he had the ball. Why? Because you know the outcome. Now, in between that, the the Texans scored runs. In the 10th inning, the Texans scored two more runs. And you know what? When they score those, I'm not freaking out. The 9th inning, David Fries has tied it. In the 10th inning, the Texans scored two runs. I'm not sitting there watching a replay going, Oh my goodness, I can't believe this. Oh my word, what is going on? What is happening? Why? Because I know. I know what's going to happen. I know the Cardinals are going to score two more. I know David Freeze is going to come up and he's going to hit a home run. I know. It's a settled fact that the Cardinals won. When I watch a replay, I'm not wondering who won the 2011 World Series. I know who won. It's a fact. You know what that does? It changes my perspective when I watch the game. I'm not near as high and I'm definitely not near as low. I'm just like, That was a pretty cool game. Because I know. Remember, we're talking about surviving or thriving. Daniel knew that God was in control. And he knew that he was in control of those that were in control. He was in control of those in control. He knew that God's plan would work out because God was in control. So there's no need to panic. There's no need to fear. There's no need to fret despite the circumstances and what they told him to do. 
You see, this is the difference of the hope that brought the apostles through, that brought Daniel through. It was not a hope of wishing or wanting, but it was a hope based on fact. It was a hope based on fact. His anchor was fact. God is in control no matter what the storm does. I'm not wishing that God would return. It's a fact that He will return someday. And if that's a fact, it should change how I view what is happening now. If God is in control no matter what, it should change how I view what's happening in my life right now. No matter, no matter how bad it may have gotten in Daniel's life, he started out each problem the way he started out, verse 2. And the Lord. And the Lord. I wonder what would happen if with everything that happens in our life, whatever happens in this world, if before we would say anything, we would start it out with saying, and the Lord. Because we know that no matter what's going on, He is in control. And the Lord is my anchor. And the Lord is my hope. And I know that He is in control. And let me remind you tonight that the game has already been played. The battle has already been fought. And so it should change my perspective when I see the situation. When I look at the circumstances, I'm not freaking out in the 10th inning because the Texans scored two runs. I'm not freaking out because the world's getting worse and worse. I'm not freaking out because bad stuff's happening to me. No, because the battle has already been won. If you would, I'm watching a replay. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That has already taken place, that he led captivity captive. 1 Corinthians 15 says, So when this incorruptible shall have put on, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, but thanks be to God, which giveth us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I'm not worried about anything because the game's already been played. He's already fought the battle. The victory has already been won in my life. It's already been won for this world. I don't have to worry about what's going on because my hope is anchored in the victory that he's already won. You see, my hope is not wishing things get better. My hope is not wanting things bad enough. No, my hope is anchored in the battle that has been fought and in the victory that has been won. So let me challenge you tonight, no matter what comes your way, no matter what, no matter what happens in your life, you need to remember that you know the ultimate victory, that you know what's going to happen, that Jesus Christ is going to win, that victory is assured in my life. If you would ask Daniel, how can you respond like this in the face of everything going on? I would venture to say that he would say, because I know God is still in control. Daniel, how come you're not bitter? How come you're not just trying to survive? Because my hope is assured and anchored to something secure. Daniel wasn't just surviving. He was thriving because he knew what was happening in a bigger picture. Jesus is talking to his disciples and I'm closing up. Closing up shop. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he makes this statement. He makes this statement about surviving and thriving. He says, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. (laughs) 
the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, or any old movie that involves a castle, how about that? You don't have to admit to watching Lord of the Rings. What were the gates for? It's an open question. It's an open discussion. When did you close the gates? I just heard... (laughs) When do you close the gates? When you want to keep someone out. When the enemy is attacking, probably. Now, we get all caught up in the world. We get all caught up in the wickedness. We read the paper. We see all kinds of stuff. Actually, the only paper I read is the Saturday Shopper. I mean, the, the, whatever shopper it is. Not the Saturday Shopper. What's the paper called? The Weekly Shopper. Shopper's Weekly. There we go. So I don't get too down with the newspaper. It's free. So if you want to read good news, read the Saturday Shopper. I can do that crossword. No, not the Saturday Shopper's Weekly. If you start reading the Saturday Shopper online, the WJBD website, you need some more uh, excitement in your life. But it says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. You see, we have this image, and I I know I'm finishing up here. I'm finishing up. We have this image of, of the world just coming against us, circumstances just coming against us. And here we are. We know, we know we're, we know we're different. We know we're in the world, but not of it. Here's how I'm in the world. And there's all kinds of stuff in here. There's an eraser. I guess that's if your notes are really bad. But we get down and we get worried about how bad the world is and what happens if this is go- what, what's going to happen if this goes on and, and what happens if this and this and all this going on. It's so bad out there. And you know what we do? We misinterpret that verse and we close up our gates. Because we think the enemy is coming against us so strong. That's not what that verse says. That verse says that hell is worried that you're coming. So they have closed their gates. But despite that fact, even with their gates closed, they will not prevail. (laughs) You see, we're not cowering trying to survive in this awful and evil world. We're not just some little thing here. No, we are on the attack. We are on the move. And Jesus says, I will build my church. That's a fact. And you know what? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We need to realize that we are not just surviving in this world, but we are in this world and we can thrive in this world. That we are not defending ourselves. We're not trying to survive and duck and cower. But I believe the church of God needs to start thriving in the middle of wickedness. Because I know His grace is enough. Because I know His grace is sufficient despite everything. We thank you. Well, you don't know what I'm going through. No, but I do know the outcome. And so I rest assured upon the outcome of the victory of Jesus Christ. And let me just assure you, if you don't think you can go forward anymore, Scripture never tells me to back up. Scripture never tells me to give up. It does tell me that I can do this in Ephesians chapter 6. And having done all, to simply stand. I would like to challenge somebody tonight. Maybe you think, oh, I've been, I've been surviving. But you know what? I understand the gates of hell can't prevail. I'm just not there yet. Well, I just challenge 
challenge you tonight in the middle of your circumstance, in the middle of your situation. Why don't you just stand firm for just a minute? Why don't you just stand up and quit cowering? Why don't you stand up and quit trying to just survive and realize you've got the Holy Ghost? Realize you've got an anchor of hope that's grounded in something sure and secure. Why don't you stand up and realize that the battle has already been won? The victory has already been assured. Oh, come on, my hope is rooted in something greater. Come on, I can stand in the middle of wickedness. I can stand in the middle of a world gone crazy. And I can lift up my head. I can stand. I can go forward. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Why don't we all stand this evening? My hope is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. In the victory that He's already won. I want to challenge you tonight. I know some circumstances may not go your way. They didn't always go Daniel's way either. But you know what? His hope was rooted and grounded in something far greater. He knew that despite my circumstances, that's not what's going to sway me. He knew that God was in control. How can you say God is in control when you are being led captive and everything you know has been destroyed and left behind? How can you say God is in control? I'm not saying it's the easiest thing to do, but Daniel learned how to do it. He learned how to do it. And he learned how to do it as a young man. I challenge young people, you know what, in school you don't have to just survive and make it through high school. You don't have to survive and just make it through college. I know you, may, you should be different. I know you may look different. I'm, I know you may have standards, but you know what, you can thrive in the middle of that situation because you know that there's a God who's in control of everything. You know that there's a God who's greater than anything else. And tonight I challenge you, quit getting caught up in the moment. Quit standing there with your fingers crossed. I hope David Freeze does something. I hope he hits. I hope he does. I hope he just doesn't strike out. No. You know what? Your life's not a replay. You're not a puppet. No, I understand that. But you know what? The battle's already been won. So I step back with calm assurance, with faith, with hope firm within me that you know what? I'm going through every situation. I'm going through it all. You know, no matter what, because God is in control. Amen. Why don't we pray right now? Lord Jesus, we come before you. Lord, I pray.